Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis Fourteenth, reminding you to please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on both Twitter and Instagram. And check out our merch at poppantheonpod.com in the merch store. We have our infamous, well, infamous isn't fair. I think it's more ubiquitous, beloved niche legend dad hat, as well as our mere superstar t-shirt. So poppantheonpod.com is the place to get those things. Also reminding you that Gorgeous Gorgeous, my queer pop party in LA is having its latest installment next weekend, Saturday, March 25th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. If you are a Pop Pantheon all access subscriber, you have access to the guest list plus one, but you have to DM us on Patreon to get that guest list spot. We are not taking any other forms of solicitation for the guest list. You got to DM us on Patreon for that. If you are not a Pop Pantheon All Access subscriber, you can buy tickets using the link in the show notes. I'd love to see everyone there. It's going to be an extravaganza as always. Also, on the subject of Pop Pantheon All Access, we just recently published a new episode, which is a conversation between myself and critic Shad D'Souza, who was our guest on the Miley Cyrus episode of the show, where he and I are reviewing and sharing our thoughts on Miley's newest album, Endless Summer Vacation, which dropped last week. We talk everything about the album, all the details, how we're feeling about it, what this means for Miley's career, if this maybe even affects her position in the Pop Pantheon. So if you want to listen to that, you can go to patreon.com slash Pantheon. Or you can click the link in the show notes to join at the icon tier and hear that, all of our bonus content, access to our Discord channel. You guys know the drill. So our new review of Miley with Shaw D'Souza is currently up on Pop Pantheon All Access. Okay, so next, let's get to the episode this week, which has been just an absolute delight for me to create. This is the story of Casey Musgraves, a country traditionalist slash provocateur turned alt-pop girly who is one of my current favorite artists or who has made some of my favorite music over the last decade or so. And I just find to be a fascinating representation of the ways that pop music and stardom are changing and all of the genre markers that we sort of have relied on in the past feel like they're collapsing, as well as the ways that pop stars can operate. And I think she just represents a lot of interesting ideas about contemporary pop stardom not to mention that she's just made a lot of fucking great music so without further ado here is pop pantheon casey musgraves i've been thinking a lot lately about the liminal state of both pop stardom and music at the moment a lot of the old rules that informed both how pop stardom functioned monocultural saturation, long runs of chart-topping singles, and how pop music can sound both feel largely in flux. Casey Musgraves, the sly country agitator turned alt-pop girly turned album of the year winner, represents a winning example of this brave new pop landscape on all fronts. 
At once a country star and a gay pop queen, a genre traditionalist who's simultaneously deeply pissed off the establishment and bent country to her aesthetic worldview, and an arena headliner who's never charted a single above number 60 on the Hot 100, Casey has braved new waters for a performer of her ilk and yet seems refreshingly blasé about it all. She's part of a new breed of pop star, one that trades in rather than smooths over idiosyncrasies and can operate very effectively and lucratively in a silo where most of the world has perhaps never heard a song of hers and yet 20,000 people will come out to see her perform and she can beat artists like Cardi B and Drake for the biggest Grammy of the year. Casey is also an artist of singular warmth to boot, one whose music conjures the comfy hug of an old friend and whose simple observations and nuggets of wisdom arrive just on time, yet resonate like you've known them all your life. So hold your own Casey Musgraves was born in Golden, Texas, a town of less than 200 residents 80 miles east of Dallas. She had a childhood befitting of a future country star, learning to play the mandolin and harmonica as a child, winning national championships in yodeling, and performing in two child country acts, the Buckaroos and the Texas Two-Bits. As a young woman, Casey bounced from Austin to Nashville, worked as a staff songwriter, and signed to an indie label, Triple Pop, and in 2012, began getting traction as a performer with acoustic covers of Miley Cyrus's See You Again and One Republic apologize, the latter of which earned Casey her first entry on the Billboard Hot Singles chart. Casey's debut studio album, 2013's Same Trailer, Different Park, presented her winning blend of traditionalism and iconoclasm, featuring a suite of songs that traded in elegantly restrained country and folk production, pitch-perfect songcraft, and borderline twee down-home lyrics about life in small-town America. But these songs also showcased Casey's clever, often hilarious Trojan horsing of ideas that challenged Nashville norms, pushing back at traditional marriage and celebrating queerness and smoking weed, all delivered rather matter-of-factly in her sweet, unassuming coup. Casey co-wrote every song on the album, which was co-produced by country hitmakers Luke Laird and Shane McAnally, and Same Trailer, Different Park received critical acclaim from both inside and out of the Nashville sphere, ingratiating her with coastal audiences who don't always engage with country music, and it won the Grammy for Best Country Album. Same Trailer, Different Park also sold half a million copies and spawned a couple minor hits, including the lead single Merry-Go-Round and the country top 10 Follow Your Arrow, a folk ditty about living life exactly how you want to, even if that means kissing another girl or lighting a a joint if you so please. Casey followed up the success of Same Trailer with her sophomore album, 2015's Pageant Material, which traded in many of the same ideas, both sonically and thematically, as its predecessor, proving her bona fides as a wily craftsman who lived life and made music on her own terms. Pageant Material also continued Casey's critical support and expanded her appeal amongst non-country audiences, but despite utilizing many traditional country sounds and genre markers, seemed to further distance her from country's core audience. The album's singles failed to crack the top 25 on the country charts, and it's 
sold about half of its predecessor. Casey's unique spot in the pop firmament, though, was solidified by her third album, 2018's Golden Hour. A romance with fellow country star Rustin Kelly, her discovery of psychedelics, and a new set of producers, Daniel Tashian and Ian Fitchuk, informed music that profoundly expanded Casey's scope, exploding the clever, simple, observational style of her early work into a blissful fantasia. These songs incorporated elements of psychedelic rock, indie, disco, and electronica, and created an atmosphere at once cozy and beguilingly sweeping, holding you in their elegant, wise, and alluring embrace. Golden Hour dealt with themes of love lost, budding new romance, and profoundly uncomplicated reflections on life itself, delivered in an intimate, lived-in way while never losing the sense of delight or light touch that had become Casey's trademarks. The album was a critical sensation that, while still a country album for all intents and purposes, firmly ensconced Casey as more of an alternative pop star beloved by the music intelligentsia and queer audiences that powered it to an unexpected win for Album of the Year at the 2019 Grammys. Casey released her latest album, Starcrossed, in 2021. While it was her love story with Kelly that inspired much of Golden Hour, it was the couple's split that informed this record, a much more pop-leading album Casey positioned as a Shakespeare-inspired modern tragedy. While Starcrossed attempted to lean into the grander scale of Casey's post-Grammys pop stature, coming complete with a short film and an accompanying arena tour, it received a bit of a lukewarm reception, both critically and commercially. Casey Musgraves has two platinum-selling albums and five platinum singles. She's won four Academy of Country Music Awards, seven Country Music Association Awards, six Grammys, a Billboard Woman in Music Award, and the Glad Media Vanguard Award. Here with me this week to break down the cozy wisdom of the wonderful Casey Musgraves is author and Who Weekly co-host Bobby Finger. So I'm here with Who Weekly co-host and author Bobby Finger. Bobby, welcome to the show, finally. Thank you for having me, Louie. I'm so so excited. I've wanted to be on the show for so long. I'm like, oh, I want Louie to pick me to be on the show. But then I was like, who would I talk about? I have no idea who I would possibly talk about. And so I was just like privately seething and jealous from afar. And then you emailed about Casey and I was like, of course. Oh my God, that's perfect. So this is so exciting for so many reasons. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Bobby, the feelings mutual. First of all, we're closing the Who Weekly circle on Pop Pantheon, which is a really important moment. And also, I remember your amazing review of Golden Hour in Jezebel. It's always stuck with me talking about your experience listening to it in your hometown when you went home. Yeah. And of course, as we know, Lindsay's very assertive with her opinions. And over Christmas time, <laughs> we were discussing the show and she was like, you need to have Bobby on to discuss Casey. And I was like, you know what? Far be it for me to tell Lindsay no when she has a strong opinion. You know what I'm saying? Queen of good ideas. Genuine. An idea machine. It's unbelievable. <laughs> she tells me to do something and I'm like, whatever you say, General, like, <laughs> you know better than me. <laughs> I still don't know what consultants do. And I think that consultants are like a scammy job. But Lindsay would be a good consultant. I feel like she'd actually <laughs> consult. One, one billion percent. I would let her consult on any aspect of my life. But also recently I was listening to the Who Weekly Patreon and you guys mm -hmm. were kind of just like casually talking about how disappointed you both were as Casey Ugh. fans in... Starcrossed her latest album, and that was yeah. how I felt too. I think the only reason I bring that up here early in the discussion is because that record, I think, was a disappointment only because there's so much magic about Casey in her first three records. And yeah. she really is such a singular voice and a singular point of view as a pop singer. I was just thinking 
as I was listening back to all of her music this time, she has this really unique thing where she radiates warmth towards her life and towards the world and towards the experience of being human, mm -hmm. almost in a way that no other contemporary artist makes me feel. She engenders those feelings in me. When I listen to Casey's music and the way that she relates to her life with such generosity and coziness, mm -hmm. it makes me happier to be alive, which is like maybe the best compliment that I can pay to a pop artist. Yeah. I wonder how you feel about that. What do you think makes her singular in the pop firmament of the moment? I think it's exactly what you said. I think that so many artists want to be that kind of person and they want to seem like the best friend you never had. And I think a lot of maybe straight pop artists pander to queer audiences. Mm. Casey, as far as I know, has married to a man, has never come out as queer. Yeah. Despite that, when Casey tells a gay person that she loves them and everything's okay. It is crazy how effective that is. You're so right. And I think that it's because she's so warm and she has spent mm. the past decade reminding you and convincing you that she is a good egg who wants nothing but hmm. the best for you. And that feels like it must be so hard because what other artist can do that? What other artist is convincingly the type of person who you could just share a joint with and sit on the couch next to? Right. It feels like this impossible task, and yet she's done it. When Casey tells you that there's always been a rainbow hanging over your head or whatever, <laughs> it's the most beautiful thing anyone has ever said to you, and she's saying it publicly to everyone. You know, it feels so personal. Yes. I think she's astonishing in that regard. I completely agree, and I think that you're highlighting another aspect that I think makes her artistry singular, which is that she trades in these simple observations about life that I think a lot of artists mm -hmm. could come across as trite or basic in some ways, but she manages to convey them with profundity in this way that is very singular to something about her just earnestness. I don't know exactly how she achieves that. I read this quote saying that she talks about the world in a sense as if she's the first person that ever saw it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really interesting element to her artistry that makes the first three records so compelling and so singular and also highlights some of the reasons that I think Starcross doesn't totally register. Yeah. But I also was going to say that I think the other bigger meta narrative that makes Casey a really interesting subject for Pop Pantheon is the way that she's collapsed the space between country music and the indie pop girly or the alt pop girly mm -hmm. we talk on this podcast about niche legends or this kind of space where pop stars are not necessarily chart toppers or they're not necessarily traditional juggernaut diamond album selling janet jackson lady gaga whatever but kind of our cult indie phenomenons charlie and carly and robin etc and casey has found her way into that group from this really unique angle of being a nashville star which i think also makes her a really compelling artist in terms of how she worked that exactly and what that says about the way that the pop music consuming public interfaces with music at this point in a genreless sort of way yeah and to go back to what you were saying about the way that she kind of speaks in cliches and uses all of these sort of trite observations another thing about it is that because she's also from the very beginning from the first song well, she mentions weed in the first song but it's not about her she has established herself as a pothead she's a stoner <laughs> she loves weed and i think that in one way it's a joke it's funny but in another way it adds this authenticity to her personality Persistent state of awe. Mm. There's a way of using those kinds of cliches where it just comes across as lazy. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, you're trying to make a rhyme. You're trying to say something simple that's easy to sing along with. But when Casey uses a cliche, some very common idiom or a turn of phrase that everyone's used a hundred million times.
million times before, it feels like she really means it. It's so true. She hears this phrase and she means it with every piece of her. These trite observations mean something to her. And it's her voice. She doesn't sound like anyone else. She's so vulnerable and melancholy in her voice. She's the whole package of sensitive country pop girly. Yeah, 100%. I think that's so true. And I would say almost conversational in a sense. You know, the artist that weirdly kept coming to mind as some weird comp to me is Lily Allen, who in her early work had this very conversational, observational tone and was able to very concisely render these observations about life that were very simple, but registered with a lot of people. And there's a conversational way to the way that they both sort of talk and also their POV on what they're singing about that actually does remind me of one another. Lily Allen, another important person in the alt-pop girly space. So I feel like there is weirdly a connective tissue there. I hadn't totally realized before I was listening to her music this particular go around. That's an incredible observation. Now I have to listen to Lily Allen and notice that really, really acutely. I'm like, oh my God, he's so right. That's so smart. That's spot on. Thank you so much, Bobby. I live to say a smart thing here and there. (laughs) (laughs) So let's go back to the beginning of Casey's story in broad strokes. Who is Casey Musgraves? Mm -hmm. Where is she born? To whom? And are there specific aspects of her early life or artists that she was exposed to or even things that you could speculate about that inform the type of country and pop star that she's going to become? Yeah, so Casey is famously, because it's in her lyrics, from Golden, Texas, Mm -hmm. which is a small town in northeast Texas. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I feel a connection to her as a Texan is because she's from a small town. Texas is enormous, but it also has some really enormous and extremely metropolitan cities. San Antonio, where I lived for a lot of my childhood, Austin, Houston, DFW, and El Paso. But there's a lot of Texas that really is in the middle of nowhere. West Central Texas, there's nothing there. There are a couple medium-sized cities, but that's it. Casey's from a small town that is pretty close to a major metropolitan area. I'm from a small town of under a thousand people. Casey's from the small town of, I think, under a thousand people. But it's still kind of right there. Mm. The city's looming. The city's right there. It doesn't feel quite as desolate as it would somewhere really in the middle of nowhere, like in the desert in West Texas in the Panhandle. Right. And so there's a closeness there that makes your dreams feel a little more attainable. You know Mm. what I mean? Like it was probably very easy for her family to go to Dallas if they wanted to or if they needed to, to run an errand or see a movie. It wasn't completely out of the question to run an errand like that. She lived off the interstate. Mm. And so based on what I know about her, she moves at some point in her youth to Austin, kind of in the final year that I'm there. Because I moved to New York from Austin in 2009. And she moves to Austin in 2008. She starts playing music. She wants to be a musician. She has all these influences. She always talks about Dolly Parton, obviously. Alison Krauss. I didn't know this until I was doing more research for this episode, but she was obsessed with Sade as a kid because her mom loved playing Lover's Rock. Oh, that's so interesting, Bobby. And it makes so much sense. There's this warmth and this perpetual melancholy to Sade's voice, Mm. this kind of aching to it that I was like, oh my God, you could hear that in Casey.
And the intimacy with the yes. microphone. Casey's very effective at creating that feeling like she's talking to you really directly in your ear. Shade also does that very well. It's sexy, but it's also kind at the same mm. time. Her voice is doing so many things at once, mm -hmm. and I'm not even sure that she's aware of it. Yes. But the fact that she moves to Austin, and when you talk about someone's bio and try to decipher what it means, of course I'm speculating, but I find it kind of interesting that she moved to Austin and not Nashville. Mm. It was also 2008 Austin, which at that point, that's where I went to college. I graduated in 2008. I was in Austin for what felt like to me, I think everyone sort of thinks this about their allegedly cool town that's <laughs> changing. But like, I feel like I truly was there in the final days of Austin being remotely weird. Right. Before downtown was littered with condos. And that's kind of when Casey gets there too. And artists can still afford to live there and just play shows. I have friends, my siblings have friends who were musicians in Austin and over the past decade, they've had to leave because they can't afford it anymore. Casey moves there when it's still kind of cool and you can be a struggling musician and try to meet people and there's an edge to Austin that Nashville doesn't have, at mm. least in my perception. I think it's interesting that she chose Austin over Nashville. Maybe that has to do with proximity. Maybe a little bit cheaper to move to Austin than to go across the country to move to Nashville. But I think it's telling that she moved to Austin. It's a different kind of music. Janis Joplin got famous playing little clubs near the UT campus. What good can It's a little harder, it's a little more old school, it's a little more honky-tonk. Mm. That may be an unfair apples to oranges comparison I'm giving them. But to me, it speaks something about Casey's character. The fact that she's been openly progressive with regards to her politics. She's not gonna say you're gonna go to hell if you're gay. I think the move to Austin says a lot. I'm really interested by what you're saying because one thing that I was sort of tossing around as I was listening to her music is this sort of push and pull between country traditionalism and then her iconoclasm. And I was thinking about the way that a lot of her musical instincts on the first couple of records feel very simple, straightforward country. I mean, I'm not exactly a country academic or anything like that, but just from my cursory understanding of it, these feel not like particularly challenging production-wise in terms of what country aesthetics are. And she's a very, very acute practitioner of country songwriting styles. She knows how to write a quote-unquote perfect country song, the way that a country song can unfurl a story in layers and keep a certain metaphor going on and on and on, or wrap their entire verse-chorus-verse-chorus structure around one single idea. She's very, very good at that kind of thing, but then at the same time, she also has this lyrical perspective, as you were getting at, that sort of is viewed and was viewed as kind of radical in the sense that she was challenging yeah. a lot of norms in terms of her point of view questioning traditional marriage, as you said, incorporating elements of drug use into her music, obviously her vocal support of the queer community. So I'm intrigued by what you're talking about, about all of these elements of her not being involved in the Nashville scene. And then as you were talking about the sort of relationship between her small town upbringing, but also the looming city feels like they're elements of her story that helped me get a grasp where that duality exists or where that duality came yeah. into being for her. Because one of the things that I think makes her great is that push and pull between like what a classically good down the middle songwriter she is and then the way that she Trojan horses these more challenging ideas into her music. Mm -hmm, totally. And to go back to the small town, another thing about that first album specifically is that when she sings about small towns, you were saying that she has this edge, but it's kind of even beyond her politics. Like we were saying, when she talks about her small town, she doesn't speak about it with rose colored glasses. She's honest about mm. there's addiction there. There's poverty there. There's systemic problems that people can't escape. That's what her first song's about. This cycle of being stuck in a place where you're unhappy and you can't get out of it. And it's she has this really admirable 
unbelievable lack of condescension when she talks about her small town. But at the same time, I love that she doesn't glamorize anything. She somehow provides this sweet portrait of a town that's also painfully honest, too. And I think that that is really unique to her. Yes. She's so honest and you believe her. Yes. At least maybe she's lying. No. <laughs> to me, as a humongous fan, to me, she is just so deeply, profoundly honest and would never lie to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> 100%. And also a very, very, very good renderer of place. You feel a sense of place when you listen to her music. And that place morphs. I mean, we'll talk about what place is on those first couple of records and then what places on Golden Hour are different to me. But you always feel very transported physically, geographically to what and where she's talking about and what she's looking at. She has a real visceral way with her music in that way. So how does she discover that she is a musician? How does she get into making music herself? What's her story as she works toward getting this record deal and making this first album? So again, she was from this small town and her mom was an artist. So her mom seems to be, based on all the story that she's told about her, she loves her mother, like the song Mother, which I right. guess we'll get to later. Her mom is this very supportive, creative figure in her life and supports her decision to do all of this music stuff. Mm -hmm. And via her mother's support, after she graduates from high school, she applies to be on Nashville Star. She doesn't win, and her voice sounds completely different, which I find really interesting. She sounds like the women country vocalists of the time, of 2006, 2007. Who are the big country stars of that moment that she's emulating? Carrie Underwood, Miranda Lambert, that sort of stuff. I'm a hard drinking country woman who can keep up with the men, that kind of stuff. really radio-friendly stadium smash country right. where everyone's singing along. You're kind of raspy. Bombastic. Kicking ass and getting drunk and drinking beer, blah, 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 blah. That was very much the vibe of the time and in a way kind of still is. It mm. has its place and I think always has its place in country music. Right. And so she sounds a little harder and more like that. And honestly, she has kind of a generic voice in those clips that I've seen on YouTube of her participating in Nashville Star. And then she goes to Austin like I said, after Nashville Star. Right. And she gets discovered by the guy who runs this label, Triple Pop. Triple Pop, that label, is responsible for the cover that she recorded of Apologize. That it's too late to apologize. And that Apologize song is the first song that gets her national attention. And it charts on one of those weird digital charts. Mm -hmm. This is like the early 2010s. Digital charts are, I guess, at this point, slowly becoming a more legitimate indicator of song popularity. Yes. And she gets charted there. And I think it's because of that, that everything sort of skyrockets, that she gets the record deal, that she opens for Lady A and all that stuff. So she's discovered in Austin. But I think the only reason that she had the confidence to go to Austin was because of Nashville Star. And the only reason she had the confidence to go to Nashville Star, it seems like, is because of her mother. Yeah. And 
it seems like it kind of also happened really, really quickly. Right. Kind of a whirlwind for her over those first four years. Right. So I just want to drill down on this for one second, because I know the audience here is probably not super familiar with the ins and outs of how Nashville and how country was functioning at this time. You were touching on this a little bit with Carrie and Miranda. How do women in Nashville function in the late aughts, early 2010s? You talked a little bit about what their music is like. I mean, I know that Nashville has had a lot of issues with sexism. Mm -hmm. What does it take for a female country star to make it? When she's looking at these women... What is she either thinking she's going to have to emulate or what do you think she's trying to push against in terms of how women in Nashville work in this particular moment? I think one thing about country music as I perceive it and yeah. understand it, something that really surprises me, and maybe if I took a deeper thought at pop and rock, I would see some similar trends. Yeah. It's kind of like once you're in country, you're in it forever. When you look at the country charts, you're sort of like, Toby Keith is still releasing music. Like, <laughs> Toby Keith is number one. I was looking at the charts for 2012, 2013, when Casey was first getting popular, and I was like, Tim McGraw had the hottest country song of that year? That's crazy to me because I kind of stopped listening to country music when I started college. Right. I was discovering new music. I was listening to Sufjan Stevens. Right, right. I had abandoned country music, which is also only a step away from country music. Right. But I lost my interest in that and especially country radio. Right. And because there are all these behemoths in country music and most of them are men and most of them are a very particular type of down-home cowboy hat wearing country yeah. star that's like a multi, 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 multi millionaire who's still pretending basically doing country cosplay for their entire life. Mm -hmm. Selling out stadiums all over the world talking about how you're just one of y'all drinking a Keystone Light or a Natty Ice <laughs> on your back porch shooting cans with your shotgun. It's crazy to me that that still works basically once you're in the club you never get out of the club and like she sings and plenty of people saying it's a boys club right and so women obviously have a hard time getting in but at the same time the women who make it into the club get to stay there too there are just fewer of them right because it's harder to get in but once you get into country and country decides they accept you mm. i feel like country fans are extremely loyal they're so loyal and they'll stick with you forever unless you diss george w bush yeah and then they'll steamroll all your albums <laughs> but the casey thing she's entering at a time when you've got Taylor Swift just starting to leave country. Right. You have Taylor Swift who never, listen to Casey's voice and Taylor's voice, that Taylor twang, which is so funny to hear now. <laughs> it is hilarious. It's like yeah. the fakest thing you've ever heard in your life. Yeah. He's got a one hand bail on the steering wheel, the other on the so, of course, she kind of was on her way out. She had a lot of hits, and her country music is great. All of her music is great. That's fine. She's on her way out. She's already been explicit about it. Red's here in 1989 is on the way. Goodbye. I'm out. Right, and she was always kind of pegged by Nashville as an outsider. They never fully embraced her, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. To her credit, I think she kind of made her intentions clear pretty early on. And then she was like, yeah, you're right. I'm leaving. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> I met yeah. Jack Antonoff. See ya. <laughs> um, so, Casey's entering this country landscape where the top women are Carrie Underwood and Miranda Lambert. Right. And their music is a lot of fun mm -hmm. and it's country and they have incredible voices, but they don't have her voice. Yeah. They don't really have her point of view. No. And I think the thing about women going into country music is, and I'm not questioning their authenticity, but I have to assume that it's really, really tough to be a woman who wants to join this industry and it's almost like an 80s teen comedy. So much of it is trying to convince these men that you are just as country as they are. Uh -huh. That you are just as cool and badass as they are. Playing the man's game, right? That's totally Carrie and Miranda's vibes. Mm. Carrie's a little softer. There's a broadness to her voice and like kind of her vibe than Miranda. Miranda's country. Carrie's country. Miranda could beat you up with a tire iron. Yeah. Carrie's just gonna like drink whiskey <laughs> next to you politely.
Right, but she's also quite legible as a very heteronormative female presence. Totally. Carrie Underwood really fits the role of the beautiful blonde woman who is feminine in that particular way as well, which I think Casey doesn't necessarily fit into that as easily. Right. She's filling in for like a Faith Hill. Right. Whereas Miranda Lambert's maybe a little harder. There's maybe a little more Reba to her. There's mm-hmm. maybe a little more Jodie Messina. Slightly more badass women in country music. That's kind of the landscape for women who were at the top of their game in the industry. And Casey's aesthetic, at least the aesthetic that she presents on Same Trailer, Different Park, mm-hmm. really doesn't fit in there. Certainly there are women in country who make music like hers, but they're not top in the charts. And I imagine that because of that, it must be hard to convince a label that you're going to be a success when look at what you're trying to enter. Yeah. How do you fit in with these people? It's interesting to me listening to you describe this because she doesn't fit either of those archetypes really easily for me. No. She doesn't seem like either the kind of beauty queen Carrie Underwood thing, and she also does not seem like a badass honky-tonk wreck-your-truck kind of girl either. So (laughs) she's really neither of those things. Do you think she sees herself as an agitator? Because there's such a light touch to what Casey does, and there's such an earnest quality to the way that she approaches what she does. Do you think from the beginning, Casey knows that she's pushing boundaries or outside of the norm? Is that an intention of hers? How do you view that? I think so. She comes across as a pretty modest person. Right. But she's also very clever. I think she completely understands her space in her industry because she seems so smart. Yeah. But at the same time, I think maybe the only reason she really had to confront the truth of herself as an agitator is because people were probably telling her this. Right. I think she was surrounded by people who were like, this is going to be tough for you. Mm. She hires or decides to, I actually don't know how their relationship got started. I think it was kind of happenstance. I don't think she knew him, but her first big hits are written by... Shane McAnally, who's this openly gay man who's writing country music for women mm. and a lot of other people, but got to start writing a country song for Leanne Womack, which is amazing, by the way. I bet you're in a boy listening to a cheating song Glass of Johnny Walker Red With no one to take you home But I think she knew that based on the landscape and the people that she was choosing to surround herself with that she didn't quite fit the mold. And I think that that's something that must have been hard for her to ignore. So I think she did know that. Right. But I also think she didn't really dwell on that. But when you're writing songs like the songs that exist on Same Trailer, Different Park, you have to know that you're stepping into kind of shaky ground with that stuff. Aesthetically, you look at the album cover for Same Trailer, Different Park, you wouldn't expect, based on that cover, that you're going to get some sort of rule-breaking songwriting Mm -hmm. inside. I think that that was a conscious decision on the part of someone who was like, from a marketing perspective, we have to make her seem like she's just one of the girls. Right. And then when they listen to it, maybe you're like, huh, she's singing about this, she's singing about that. This isn't quite what I expected based on the cover, which is her and country boots looking kind of sexy. And she doesn't do that again. She doesn't lean into the sort of album art sexiness ever again. Her album art is portraits of her face or not her face at all after that. Right. I think that that album art says a lot about what people expected from her and what people were cautious of regarding her. Uh, the Trojan horse aspect of it. This stuff is sly. It's not like she opens her mouth and you're immediately like, holy shit. It sneaks in. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You're like, huh, interesting. Yeah. So let's talk about her debut single, which is Merry Go Round. You made reference to it earlier. What does this song sound like? What is it about? And how does it present Casey as her first true artistic statement? How does Casey arrive to us in this early song? 
She arrives to us as someone who is introducing herself indirectly by being like, I'm one of you, but it also introduces her kind of lyricism, that wordplay, mm-hmm. kind of instantly. It's a really clever start because this album is filled with great songs and songs that ended up becoming hits. Introducing yourself with the sort of quieter song that's really sad about the harsh realities of small town life in contemporary America, as opposed to kind of like a badass empowering song right about a woman who reminds you of Miranda Lambert and Carrie Underwood right is I don't know it's a risk yeah mama's hooked on Mary Kay brother's hooked on Mary Jane and daddy's hooked on Mary two doors down Mary Mary quack and schwery we get bored so we get married just like dust we settle in this town on this I'm really interested in this song because I think it's fascinating to present an artist like Casey Musgraves to us for the first time on a song about the way that if you subscribe to tradition, you're selling yourself short. And I think that that's something that animates a lot of her artistry is Mm -hmm. pushing slightly back on those ideas. And so this song really serves as an effective mission statement and opening salvo for her because here you have very simple, understated production that gestures at country tropes that are familiar everyone you've got the banjo and her twang you're immediately in something that feels familiar you're not feeling like oh my god this sounds radical it's not like you're listening to those like lang shania songs or whatever from the beginning that just felt like what the fuck is happening she has this really funny dry take but like these things that are kind of takedowns of traditionalism in her lyrics Mm -hmm. essentially taking the piss out of these ideas or trying to push back on ideas of traditional values Mm -hmm. if you ain't got two kids by 21 you're probably gonna die alone at least that's what tradition told you and it don't matter if you don't believe come sunday morning you best be there in the front row like you're supposed to so to me this song is a very effective introduction to like why Casey is an interesting artist. And then, of course, you've got the genius hook. Mama's hooked on Mary Kay. Brother's hooked on Mary Jane. Daddy's hooked on Mary. Two, two doors, doors down. down. Oh, my God. It's incredible. <laughs> what I love about this song is that you kind of get a really clear thesis mission statement. You've got someone that knows tradition, pushes back at tradition, and is an expert song crafter, and is also an incredibly funny and shrewd observational artist. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree with you. This song is a very, very effective intro to her. What is the reaction to this? Do you have a sense of how country Nashville reacts to the song? Is the song a hit in the traditional sense? I remember the first time I heard this song, and I probably heard this song literally the day it was officially released, yeah. because our mutual friend, Stephen Horowitz, yes. who was a music journalist and did a lot more traditional music writing at the time, right. knew I was a country fan, knew I was from a small town in Texas, and sent me the press release for this. I'd heard of her before, but sent me the song and was like, remember this artist, I think you'd like this song. Yeah. And I was like, you're right, I like this song. I wasn't really paying attention to the country press at the time, but my first thought was, oh, wow. I was instantly surprised that a New York media music journalist was receiving press releases about this woman and receiving them excitedly and forwarding them to his friends was really surprising. I was like, oh, this is wild. And my first thought was, Taylor would never do something like this, which is maybe rude of me. Mm -hmm. Even at the time I was a Taylor Swift fan, I was like, oh, wow. 
The millennials are here to sort of shake up country music. I don't know that I had all that much faith in her. I was instantly kind of in love with her voice and I already a little bit was, but I don't know that I was necessarily, we got a superstar on the horizon, but I was really impressed by the content of the lyrics. I'm so interested in the dissemination of that to you and that whole story because obviously one thread that we're going to be pulling apart here is Casey's treading of the line between country star and alt pop girly, as we were sort of talking about earlier. Golden Hour, you in your review talked about how mm -hmm. you resent the ideas that people say that that record isn't as country or whatever, which I totally understand. But there's elements of that record that can signify to people that don't like country necessarily, like that this is for them too. I mean, the use of synthesizers and the psychedelic aspects of it and the sort of like indie rock flourishes on that record mm -hmm. feel like they're not there as some sort of craven attempt to game that audience. But when I hear that, I understand that as country music that's also meant to expand outside of traditional country boundaries on some particular way. And I'm so interested to think that on this music, which to me feels much more squarely country. And again, I'm a neophyte, so correct me if I'm wrong about that. But I'm interested that right from the jump, there was this interest in this artist that I don't think happens with the vast majority of country artists that emerge, even still to this day. And I think especially interest in non-country press and non-country media. Right. And I think that had she not been who she is, which is such a stupid thing to say, but because Casey was singing about stuff that was a little off the beaten path and a little atypical and a little surprising and kind of empowering, mm -hmm. that got attention in a good way, in a way that they must have really wanted. Because they were like, you know what? If country press isn't going to embrace us, at least Pitchfork might. We'll get something nice in Billboard from a writer who may not have any sense of what country music is. That's how I remember early Casey press. Yeah. It was coming in places that I didn't typically see country press at all. Right. Interesting. And I think that was a perfect move on their part. Perhaps born out of necessity necessity, yeah. as you're saying, which I think is really interesting. Like, okay, we're not necessarily going to be a cup of tea for mainstream down the middle country fans. Where else can we turn? Yeah, and exactly. they did that really affect me. Either that was a strategy that really worked well or organically, like her music and POV is so strikingly of our generation that it is able to cross those boundaries. There is something about the ways that she sings about the world and obviously her stature as a liberal-minded, queer-accepting, weed-smoking girl mm -hmm. that immediately makes her somebody that could be accessible to a group of people that would probably never pay attention to her music otherwise. So yeah. let's talk about her debut record, 2013's Same Trailer, Different Park. So how does this record expand on the person that we meet on Merry-Go-Round? How would you describe the kind of sound and themes that she deals with on this record? I didn't listen to a lot of country in this period of my life. Right. I had moved on. Right. The last country artist that I was kind of really into was Taylor Swift. So it was surprising to me that I was getting emotionally invested in this new country artist when I felt like at that period of my life, I had moved on from the genre and that it was firmly in the past. And so it was very surprising that when the album actually came out a few months after the first single, I was listening to it and I fell in love. And before recording the podcast, I was listening to a Carrie Underwood album and a Miranda Lambert album from around the same time, just to like mm -hmm. remind myself of what they sounded like then. What's so interesting is that it's all acoustic guitar. I grew up around music that has conditioned me such that when I hear a slide guitar, I'm just like, yep, my ears perk up. I'm like, <laughs> I'm moved. I'm interested. I'm here. Yeah. There's a really interesting sort of disconnect between the progressive nature of her lyrics and the right. forward-thinking mindset of Casey and the really traditional production. Nice come on, hit your wagon to the living room. I'm dragging. If I can't bring you to my house, I'll bring my house to you. And it's really spare and there's no electric guitar here there's nothing hard and right that's so weird 
for the time. Mm. But that's what I like. I never liked the sort of electric guitar country stuff. That was never my vibe. Right. And so this really warmed my heart. And I think that so many of the songs, they're not really introducing her personally. She waits for that. Right. But they are introducing her vibe. Silver Lining is one of my favorite songs. It's the opener for the album. And it's just the kindest, most uplifting, you're going to be okay kind of song. Yeah. <laughs> To this day, 10 years later, I can't believe it's literally almost 10 years old today, this album. Yeah. It makes me so happy. It almost makes me cry every time I listen to it. She is just instantly asserting herself as the kindest friend you'll ever have and the person who will always answer the phone. Right. And someone who has a weird amount of wisdom, yeah. but doesn't have a chip on her shoulder about mm -hmm. it. There's this really interesting vibe that she has. I wrote in my notes that it's a little bit of a shrug and a duh. You know what I mean? Like, of course this is the way the world is. Yeah. And you're kind of like, yeah, you're so right. On that song, she's like, if you're ever going to find a four-leaf clover, you got to get a little dirt on your hands. And you're like, uh, yeah. The whole song is cliches. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like the most beautiful songwriting you've ever heard in your life. That's magic. Yes. You know? I agree. She's so plain spoken. Mm -hmm. It's so matter of fact. That's such a unique quality mm -hmm. to have as a singer. And there's a delight that she takes at life that I think makes her so appealing. When I listen to her sing, I'm like, I want to see the world like you see the world. I want to look at the world in this way because she seems like she finds life mm -hmm. delightful. I get the sense from her that she really takes it all in and finds the act of being alive to be something fun and warm. And amazing. And amazing. <laughs> she likes to learn about things. She has this almost childlike perspective on it. And the way that she delivers that, I just find when I'm listening to her music, I'm like, I want to go about my life thinking about yeah. the world this way. It's inspirational. But I agree with you that this record isn't a record centered around personal revelation. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of the emblematic song from this record is Follow Your Arrow, which yeah. becomes maybe the most widely known song from this record and the song that contains a lot of the sort of, it's so funny to think of them as controversial because this song is, again, just a sweet little ditty <laughs> yeah. in so many ways. Mm -hmm. It has such a light touch as like everything that she does, but it contains the lyrics, kiss lots of boys and kiss lots of girls if that's what you're into and light up a joint or don't or light up a joint I would the two ways she does that people were pissed about that <laughs> that is one thing I do know This song is so genius and I feel like it's such a mission statement for Casey 1.0. What was the reaction to this song? The reaction to this song was deep admiration from Tumblr users. Right. And extreme <laughs> ire from conservative country purists. Yeah, right. People hated this song. Right. And in a way, I think they knew it would be hated and it comes later in the album. Yeah. I don't want to read too much into song placement within an album, but it comes later. It's sort of like, now that I got you, gay people are okay. Now that you're hooked, <laughs> I'm okay with gay people. Now that I'm talking about living in a mobile home, you can't talk about weed and gay people. <laughs> and they were right to be nervous. And I think people were upset about it. I remember having a conversation about it with my mom at the time. Mm. <laughs> she asked me if I'd heard of her. We didn't have like a kind of explicit conversation about the song. 
But in my mind, I was like, the only reason she knows that Casey Musgraves exists, my mom does not like contemporary country music past Shania Twain. The only reason that she knows that Casey Musgraves exists is because she heard about it in negative terms because of Follow Your Arrow. Absolutely. Oh, interesting. That speaks volumes to me. Right. And people were mad about it. But at the same time, enough people were so thrilled and thankful for her for doing that, that Mm. they won the bet. The pros outweighed the cons with that song. She imprinted upon an entire generation of queer people who like discovering music online. Yes. And I think they're still her fans. She got them right away and she stuck with them. Yeah. And this song illustrates, I think, a lot of what you were talking about earlier, which is it's delivered so plainly, but it's so moving. Yeah. I was so moved once again listening to this song because it is brave and radical for a woman in this space to be singing these lyrics. And there's something incredibly touching about it every time that I listen to it. And also the matter of factness of it, I think is part of what makes it so moving. It's not being like, I'm making a gay anthem. It doesn't feel like she's trying to do anything important per se. It just feels like sort of slipping out of her mouth. Of course, this is how things are. And that I think is part of the reason I find it so emotionally effective. And the fact that it's on her first album too, a lot of that has to do with when she started releasing music, but it took Taylor Swift a lot of albums to get to the point where she was comfortable saying, it's okay for girls to kiss girls. It took a lot of albums for her to get there. Boys and boys and girls and girls. Right. And in the interim, she was releasing songs that were a little bit homophobic. There are a couple songs that I'm sure she regrets and I think she openly regrets them. Mm -hmm. So to have someone Mm -hmm. right out the gate be like, no, I'm okay with this. I'm this type of person is a little bit, I hate calling celebrities brave because I think they rarely are, but like there's a little (laughs) little bit of bravery in coming out of the gate with this and saying, don't question me. I'm not going to wait until later. I'm not going to wait until I've got you before I reveal this. I'm going to do it right now. Yeah. This may blow up in my face, but I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to smoke weed and tell people that it's okay to be gay in one song. Damned if you do, damned if you don't, so you might as well just do whatever you want. Is that a Casey thesis if I've ever heard one? And she sounds like Leanne Womack. She sounds like Miss I Hope You Dance herself. So am I right to assume that none of these songs are smash hits on Nashville radio or anything like that, right? No. I think that they're moderate successes. Right. I was surprised that she had a few actual moderate successes from this album. And if anything, as a fan, I was like, oh, good. That means that she's going to make another one. And I think it might be better. Right. I was just sort of rooting for her to be accepted in enough of a way to secure another album. Right. So she was instantly alt, right? Instantly. Is that like a common thing in country? Was she in a space unto herself in that way? She's the only person who was doing it like this at the time. Yeah. She felt very singular pretty instantly. Yeah. There were a lot of Taylor Swift comparisons because there was kind of really no one else to compare her to, but even those don't really do much. She's not a pop star at this point and she's not a Nashville star, but she somehow has found some sort of cult audience here with this record. Yeah, and she played at the Grammys that year. People liked it. And I think the Grammys performance speaks to her broad appeal Mm. from the external music powers that be. The critical acclaim is a big part of the engine behind this. Yeah. So she returns in 2015 with her sophomore album, Pageant Material. Is there a vision for this that you feel like is expanding upon what she's doing on Sam Trailer Driven Park? How do you view this music in terms of the trajectory or development of Casey's point of view or artistry? What I find really interesting about Pageant Material, I go back and forth as to whether or not Pageant Material or Golden Hour is my favorite Casey album. Right. But number one, it's an introduction. It's not even a reintroduction. Pageant Material is filled with songs that are really defining who she is, what she thinks, what she believes, 
what kind of person she is, what she does, where she's from, etc. But it's also more of the same. And I think that to me, this album is a really powerful second step. Like she stepped into the room and then with pageant material, she took another step in and shut the door behind her because it's still very country. There's no electric guitar on this. It is filled with even sillier wordplay. Biscuits is one of the silliest songs she's ever released, but it's also <laughs> the craziest, most delightful earworm. Just hold your own And I think what's so cool about this album is that it took a couple years, so it wasn't a really speedy album. It was a normal album cycle, but there was really no marked change. She was just her again. And I think that to me, that says that she's trying to convince this industry and these fans that she's in it to win it, that she's here to stay, and that she's not going to leave you for pop radio. Mm. That's how I perceive this album from, I don't know, a creative standpoint and a marketing standpoint. She's asserting something here. And also I find it so interesting, and I keep repeating myself, that she saved it for the second album to really get a little autobiographical. Right. I think it's so cool that she's like, now that I've got you, this is who I am. It's a really grand introduction as to who she is. Okay, so I'm interested in that because there's definitely like a lot of songs on here that feel like they're building on the same formula as you were mentioning. Maybe there's the introduction of orchestral strings here and yeah. there that feel like potentially like an expansive sonic palette. But I agree with you for the most part. She's amazing at picking collaborators. No matter who we're talking about, there's a real sense of taste and restraint in the production and all of her music that really allows her quiet voice to like be as effective as it possibly can. Mm -hmm. This is the record I was the least familiar with going into the process of prepping for this episode. So you've got like two modes of Casey that I feel like develop here on this record, which is the Casey that we kind of knew from the first record who delivers maxims about life, right? Delivers these simplistic, but very effective, often funny, cheeky maxims about life. Mm -hmm. Mind your own biscuits and life will be gravy. Yeah. She does that in a number of different songs. Family. But then I'm interested in the songs where you think she starts to reveal herself to us a little bit more. Where are those parts of this record that you feel like expand on Casey's artistic perspective, artistry, and persona here? The opener? I think that Golden Hour and Pageant Material have incredible bangers of openers. They're so good at mood setting and table setting, high time and later slow burn. Yes. But high time, I think, is asserting herself as someone who smokes weed and someone who <laughs> loves to relax. And I think it's really crucial. She loves to relax. She loves to relax. She loves to do nothing. This girly, she loves to relax. It's so relatable and cool. She's so cool. It's someone you just want to sit on the couch with, smoke a joint with, or drink a beer with. She's so good at cultivating that kind of personality. It's I love a person that can do that and not be anxious is a very appealing type of person to me because I so can't relate, but I like want to be that type of person so badly. Someone that really takes life slow and then loves taking life slow. She embodies <laughs> yeah. that. And I'm just like, give me some of that queen. Every time I listen to these records, I want to be you in that way. Yeah. So these first three songs on the album, I think are so good at establishing her identity in a way that she only sort of suggested in the first album. Yeah. High Time, Dime Store Cowgirl, and Late to the Party. I think there's 
so good at saying this is the type of person I am. Dime Store Cowgirl is explicitly an introduction. She's like, I'm from a small town and you know what? I don't live there anymore, but I'm always going to be a small town girl. Right. You could take me out of the country, but you can't take the country out of me. <laughs> Which is a line as old as country music itself. And she yeah. performs it as though it's brand new. I'm just a dime store cowgirl. That's all I'm ever gonna be. You can take me out of the country, but you can't take the country out of me. No, cause I'm still the girl from Golden. Had to get away so I could grow with it. No matter where I'm going, I'll still call my hometown home. Her voice does so much work. And I know she's a really talented songwriter, obviously. Yeah. But her voice is, I think, kind of underappreciated, undervalued. It's so special. It's so vulnerable. And that's why I think the Sade of it all, and I think Alison Krauss, which I already knew she loved Alison Krauss, those two women have these instantly vulnerable, beautiful, melancholy, relatable voices. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You listen to them and you feel instantly. You just feel what they're feeling. It's so easy to empathize with someone who has a voice like Casey Musgraves. Yes. And then the Sade thing is also interesting because we've said this in some ways before already, but her music is very soothing. She's not just a relaxed person on record, but her music relaxes the listener. And I think that Sade's music also has that effect when you listen to it. And that was something that was really hitting me. This music made me feel chill. And Late to the Party, which is fun because it defines her as a person, but it also defines her as this is the type of partner I am. This is how I am in a relationship. I'm not going to change for you. She sort of goes back on that later on in Starcross, which is a whole other story. But she's like, I'm just a chill girl, even in a relationship situation. We're just going to hang out. Mm -hmm. We'll be late to the party because we're busy like making out or having sex or smoking a joint. Doesn't matter. I'm just a chill girly. Right. By the time we get there, everybody will be drunk. The chairs will be on tables and the band will be unplugged. We're gonna look real good but we're gonna look real rude. I'm sorry, I'm not sorry that I'm late to the party with you. And then, of course, there's the title track, which I said the first three songs, it's really the first four, because pageant material, yeah. it's so funny to me that she introduces herself twice in the first half of the album. I'm a dime store cowgirl, but it's almost like she had these two songs that she couldn't decide which one to keep on the album, and then she just kept both. Right. This album could have been called Dime Store Cowgirl or Patch. That's what I think. When I listen to mm. this album, I'm like, I wonder if there was a sort of push and pull there. Was there a lot of discussion about what this album should be called? Because I think Dime Store Cowgirl or Pageant Material would have worked. I think Pageant Material is a little better, and I think it was the right choice, but whatever. Well, especially because it's a misnomer because she's literally like, I ain't yes. Pageant Material. So it's a little bit of a Casey beat and switch there going on. Exactly. I And then I think the other introductory songs are Good Old Boys Club, and I think that has a lot to do with what I was saying about her trying to assert herself in this industry, calling out the industry in this song. Don't wanna be a part of the good old boys club. Cigars and handshakes. Appreciate you, but no thanks. And then immediately following that up with Cup of Tea, saying, look, there were plenty of haters when I released my first song. And guess what? I don't care. It all slides mm. right off my back. I don't care that people don't like me that much. I don't care that I barely broke the top 10 of the country charts with my first album. Right. It's fine with me. You don't have to like me. I like me. You can't be. 
Like you said, it's so conversational. It's so comfortable. It's the most comfortable album. I love that about this. And that's why I love about Golden Hour as well. Yeah. She's so comfortable in her own skin, mm. even when she's not doing well. That's kind of aspirational. It's like, oh, I kind of wish I had her composure. I wish I could be more like Casey. And again, like you said, soothing. I love how you're reframing this. When I was listening to Dime Store, Cowgirl in particular, I was like, is this an attempt to reshore up her country bona fides? But I think what you're saying makes me feel like she's more saying I'm just as country as anybody is, even though I'm approaching this from such a different angle than you might expect me to from a traditionalist POV. She kind of doubles down on some of the more traditionalist country sounds and tropes on this record, but yet is doing so almost in defiance of the people that say that she isn't adequate yeah. as a country star. And that's like a really interesting way to present herself against the backlash that had formed to her in Nashville following the first record. It's a very Casey way to answer to that, where it feels chill and she's not trying too hard or it's not overthought. She's just like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What? What'd you say about me? Mm, fine. Whatever. <laughs> exactly. I know that she's definitely keeping up with what the haters are saying and what loud voices in her industry are saying yeah. and the broader fan base of country music is saying. Yeah. But there's something about it, though, that it's surprising that nothing's too defensive. No. She doesn't have it in her to be defensive. <laughs> she's not really fighting back. She's just sort of like, I heard it. I don't care. <laughs> right. Yeah. She's like too tired, you know? <laughs> yeah, she's too high. <laughs> exactly. I love the lyric, Bobby. It's not that I don't care about world peace, but I don't see how I can fix it in a swimsuit on a stage is such a funny fucking lyric. I love that lyric. She has some really, really incredible little turns of phrases and one-two punches. There's bars on this record. Life ain't always roses and pantyhose. <laughs> it's a very Reba McIntyre-y and Dolly mm. Parton-y hyper feminine shove my femininity into the faces of these men in this industry mm -hmm. but it's also just like so stupid at the same time and it's very cool that she's willing to be a little self-deprecating and be a little silly on these albums oh yeah oh yeah she's goofy yeah she's goofy my one critique of it would be that the worldview feels i get that there's some songs that now that she's famous she says i swam in a hotel pool yeah. or whatever <laughs> which is so funny but i feel like Given what comes next, which to me feels kind of like a bust open, expansive mm -hmm. artistic revelation in terms of the scope of her worldview in a weird way. These first two records feel like of a piece with each other in a certain way that I only think that now I think because what comes next reframes them that way, maybe in particular. Yeah. But I'm curious the reception to this. So she kind of emerges on this first record. She's sort of like this critical darling. She finds this niche cult fan base. Would you say that this is just keeping the boat afloat? Essentially, like, does this expand her fan base in meaningful ways? How do you describe the reception here? Critically and commercially, I guess. The critical reception is great. I remember I also reviewed this for Gawker or Jezebel. I reviewed both of them, and I wasn't really like an album review or a music review. I was just like, I really love Casey Musgraves. Can I review those albums? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting a stream of it was like pulling teeth. I remember that being difficult, and I was like, why is this hard? Not mm. many people are going to write about this. Please just give me a stream of this album. And I loved it. The critical reception was great. And again, I think that that is kind of really crucial to her success that the non-country press is writing about this and being right. abusive about it because right. it doesn't top the country charts by any means. And it's certainly not topping the broader Billboard charts, but critics love it. And I noticed that while the first record had a couple moderate country hits, this didn't have any. None. But I think that that's because of who she is. She's just different enough. She's just left of center enough to be a little bit rejected by the country mainstream. And again, at the time, the mainstream doesn't sound like her. Yeah, right. She is kind of in a weird singer-songwriter alt 
indie star limbo. Right. <laughs> She's relying on the broader music press to keep her lifted up so that she can keep releasing music. And she's relying on non-traditional outlets to buy her songs. People who may not listen to a lot of country music. Yeah. She's literally Carly Rae Jepsen. Yes. I mean, like, it's funny <laughs> yeah. to me. And that's happening right at this exact moment. I mean, Emotion also comes out in 2015. I mean, she doesn't sound like she's in the same sonic universe as Charlie XCX and Carly Rae Jepsen and Tuve Lu and all these artists that are starting to come out and occupy this specific space in the more electronic dance pop space. But she is kind of weirdly one of them. That's always something that I found really fascinating and singular about Casey is she doesn't sound like these artists, but yet somehow her career is starting to operate in the same mold as them in a weird way. Yeah, totally. So what I want to ask you next is Casey's narrative and personal life story becomes really critical groundwork for this next record. I was curious if you can lay out what exactly happens between 2015 and the release of Golden Hour in 2018 in her personal life that provides the fodder and aesthetic shift that occurs in this next record. So I started following Casey on Instagram basically when I started listening to your music in 2012. Like I said, I was instantly obsessed with her and I was like, I gotta know more about this person. Like, where's she from? Yeah. What's she doing? Blah, blah, blah. And I love knowing the trajectory. Like, why have I never heard of her? She's so young. She's almost my age. She lived in Austin. I love it all. Yeah. And I noticed that she was dating this guy. She never really talks about this. I want to preface this by saying that this is basically speculation, but pretty confident speculation. She was dating someone who was in her band. Oh. I don't remember what his name was. The Space Cowboy is, as far as I know, this guy who was in her band, who she dated for a long time, who was just oh. this like Texas guy, small town guy, just like mm. her. And by the time Golden Hour comes up, she and this guy are no longer together. She's famous. She's dating Rustin Kelly, who was another country star. Right. Cause you still come when you need someone to love or you need a hand to touch through my face down in the mud. And so kind of in the same way, God, what's the Taylor Swift album? I think it's Reputation. That's kind of half breakup album, half I found the love of my life after this breakup album. Reputation is very like, I'm with the love of my life who is protecting me from the fact that everyone in the world hates me. Hates me and my heart's been broken so many times before, but with this guy, it's different. Yeah. And I think that Golden Hour has a similar vibe. She's broken up with this guy that she was with forever. Right. She's suddenly more famous. She's not a superstar by any means, but she's more famous. She's critically beloved. People love her. People whose opinions she cares about are really anticipating this third album. Yeah. And she's also exploring what it's like to be a celebrity. Mm. At this point in her career, she can't pretend to just be the Dime Star Cowgirl exclusively anymore. She can't dine out on that forever because at some point you get too famous where people stop believing you. And to her credit, her music and her narratives evolve along with her, which I think is really smart. And I think as a listener, it's good because you never get frustrated. It's like, why are you still singing like you're not famous? We all know you're famous. Right. And so by golden hour, she's broken up with this guy. Right. Her space cowboy. Right. But she's also with someone who gives her butterflies. And I think one of the coolest things about the golden hour release cycle was that she released those first two songs at the same time. She released a breakup song, one of the most heartbreaking, beautiful breakup songs I've ever heard in my life. Oh, that song is a stunner. It's perfection. <laughs> it's such a Casey breakup song too, because Casey doesn't fight against life. That's a thing that I feel like is such an indicative part of what makes her such a singular artist. Yeah. So this record we'll talk about in a second because it's an exploration of bliss in so many ways, but also mm -hmm. this song is so gorgeous to me because the whole thing is like, I know that this is over and that's so painful to me, but I also am never going to stop you from being the person that you need to be or try to control that this has run its course or that you need to yeah. have your space, comma, cowboy, which is also... Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. just such a clever it's so funny. flip of the title. And also does a great job of setting up the more psychedelic tones of this record, the idea of a space cowboy, all of these trippy imagery that she's going to bring into fruition on this record. So you can have your space cowboy. This record just punches me in the gut because that is such a beautiful sentiment and such a sentiment that's like singular to Casey to me, which is this idea of I'm heartbroken, but I accept what's happening here. It's such like a beautiful way to sort of approach that and kind of unique in a female pop space. There's so many pop songs that are about force of will and rising from the ashes and like all of these particular guises of female pop star that we're familiar with. And this just feels so singular to Casey to me. And you also immediately hear the change in the production. Like the production all of a sudden is incorporating lots of reverb drum production and it's ethereal, yeah. Yeah. You can definitely hear she switched producers between these two records to so these guys like Ian Fitchuk, I think is his name. and Luke Laird, yeah. The music still sounds somewhat adjacent to country, but also is like incorporating a lot of more electronic elements into the soundscape and like some indie rock flourishes. And hip hop might be a stretch, but like kind of booming 808 kind of reverby drums and bass in the background of the song. Such a beautiful yeah. song. I love this song. Anyway, so you, and then you were going to say Butterfly is like her love song is the other single. Her love song comes out at the same time and I think it kind of speaks to what the album is. It's both of those things at once. It's happy and sad at the same time. Right. <laughs> I didn't know him and I didn't know me. Cloud Nine was always out of reach. Now I remember what it feels like to fly. You give me butterflies. It's so good at capturing precisely what her vibe is and precisely what is so appealing about her to people. And what's crazier about Space Cowboy and Butterflies, not just that she released a breakup song and a love song at the same time to introduce her album, but they're both incredible examples of their genres. Mm. It's an incredible love song that's so beautiful. It's as beautiful as Late to the Party, which right. again, we were kind of talking about as this very personal song and the song that identifies her, but it's also just a really lovely love song. Mm. And Butterflies is too. And Space Cowboy is a heartbreaking and gorgeous breakup song. It's so interesting to these songs against each other, Butterfly and Space Cowboy, because I think there's one way to frame Golden Hour as a blissful psychedelic experience, which I think it really was. I mean, one of the important elements in the creation of this record is that Casey does experiment openly with psychedelics. And clearly that has a massive impact both on like her songwriting and her artistic point of view, and also in the soundscape of this album, which incorporates a lot of psychedelic rock elements to it and has a real feeling of being on a warm, magical trip. But I think what makes that not seem stupid is that it captures also the kind of like way that during a psychedelic experience, you can experience, as you were talking about, being happy and sad at the same time. Is there a word for the way that I'm feeling tonight? Happy and sad at the same time. Or 
experiencing butterflies and then the next moment having revelations about past breakups, past pains, whatever. This record handles all of those things in the most beautiful way. This album is so moving. I was crying by the end of listening to it. And again, I think it comes back to what I was talking about at the beginning of the conversation, which is that there's something about her worldview, the warmth and coziness with which she relates to all of the human experience, the good parts, the blissful parts, and then also the harder parts of it. She creates space for all of it and seems to welcome all of those things and have a friendly relationship to all parts of that experience that is incredibly aspirational yeah. and incredibly moving. She's incredibly empathetic towards her own self. I think about a song like Slow Burn or Lonely Weekend actually, like kind of as a one-two punch. These songs that are essentially celebrating her idiosyncrasies, celebrating the things about her that don't make sense with what everybody thinks that she should be doing. She says on Slow Burn, whatever feels good. She's very ensconced in her own experience. Lonely Weekend, amazing iteration of what I'm talking about here where she's able to engage with the idea that she sort of has FOMO, but also doesn't care and likes being by herself at the same time. Mm -hmm. Guess I'm hanging by myself, but I don't mind. I keep picking up my phone, putting it back down. There's a little part of me that's got the fear of missing out. Yeah. These songs are really interesting in the way that she both celebrates, but it all feels like it has both layers going on. Like she's cool with the fact that she has multiple parts of this experience going on at the same time. That's part of what I find particularly moving about these songs. I keep looking at my phone, putting it back down. There's a little part of me that's got the fear of missing out. And it's so low, it's so low, it's so lonely weekend. And what you were saying about her saying that she's cool being alone. Yeah. That's really aspirational and that's great. And we love to think of our pop stars and celebrities in general as relatable and just like us. Every magazine, every type of magazine has a section about trying to make stars seem human. Yeah. And the thing is... Casey never does stuff publicly mm. in this always on so much attention celebrity culture that we live in to contradict that. Casey never gets gotcha by anyone. It's not like, oh, you like being alone? Then why are you always at this club? Why are you always at these places? We don't see Casey anywhere. She lives her values. Casey's not really <laughs> calling the pops. Casey's not really out and about all yeah. the time. She's not doing anything that makes us disbelieve her. And I think that that's so cool. The other thing about Slow Burn that is, I think, really special and powerful. One of my favorite lines on the whole album is just deeply stupid. Yeah. When Casey says, in Tennessee, the sun's going down, but in Beijing, they're heading out to work. In Tennessee. That is the observation of a very high person who's just like, <laughs> fuck, time is crazy. Yeah. The world is nuts. The sun is insane. It's five o'clock here and it's 11 yeah. o'clock there. What are you talking about? Right. That is a sort of childish elementary school observation. But when Casey says it, you're kind of like, damn, it's crazy that in Beijing, it's a different time. Yeah. 
She's yeah. so right about that. Yeah. The fact that she can do that to a sober person is nuts. She's magical in this album specifically. I pulled that quote out from your review and you wrote, damn, put it on a koozie. <laughs> so funny. I forgot oh. that I wrote that, but that sounds like me. Yeah. It's the simplicity or even like the stupidity of the lines that only mm -hmm. accentuate her appeal. She makes the best parts of like the most simplistic human experience or like having dumb, profound thoughts like that feel so important, so moving and meaningful in this deep way that she's able to also suck you into her experience. And I think that that's something that we've been circling around that I think is an important element of her. She makes you feel like you are her in the way that she sings. Like you become very identified with her worldview. And in terms of those stupid lines that land so profoundly on this record, I mean, the song, Oh, What a World. I mean, yeah. she literally is going, Bobby, these are real things. <laughs> these are real things. What a mushroom ass thing to say I wrote in my notes. <laughs> these are The other mushroom ass thing to say is when you know that she experimented with psychedelics on this album and it really informed her worldview, you start re-examining everything, even butterflies. Yeah. Maybe she's tripping with her new boyfriend and the butterflies are just something that she's seeing or thinking about. Yeah, right. It makes you sort of re-examine even what should be kind of obvious lyrics Yeah. from the perspective of someone who's really opening their mind in new ways, even if they're kind of lame ways. But the way that you know that no one else could sing these lyrics effectively, I think is perpetually across all of the albums, one of the main reasons that she's, I think, as well-liked as she is. Because people know that she's doing it the way that no one else can do it. These songs cannot be sung by anyone else in a way that would be convincing. No one. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, are we here just once or a billion times was another great yeah. one, I thought. Yeah. There's two things about Oh, What a World that I feel like also highlight the sort of blissed out but incredibly moving aspect of the record yeah. is part of the psychedelic experience is this man, right? Like, I love the way she works the lyrical content on this song. The whole song is about the observations of the world and then the chorus ends oh what a world and then there is you this feeling of him being part of this psychedelic revelation you know what i mean is such an interesting element of this but he's secondary yes right but he's there in the mix too like in the magical space she's creating i had such a sense of the small town places and geographical scapes that she's painting on the first two records of these particular areas like these geographical mm -hmm. senses of place and on this record i have a real sense of place in her trip yeah like i feel like i'm there with her in her psychedelic trip I feel like I'm seeing the butterflies and I'm seeing the nature and the river running wild and all of the things that she talks about on this record. But the other thing that I thought was really important that I want to say is a powerful element of this record to me emotionally is she says on Oh, What a World, tell me it's not too good to be true. And I think that that line belies what I think is part of the power of this, which is that it's not just groovy, hippie, I'm tripping and it's fun, which I have a feeling that you and I wouldn't be connecting so much to a record that just had that perspective. Yeah. But there's a sense of the ephemeralness of what she's experiencing at the moment. There's a sense that whatever bliss this record is doing such a wonderful job of rendering, there's going to be an end to it. I have this sense when I listen to this record that there's an awareness, as there often can be during psychedelic experiences, that this is an experience I'm having right now that's making me feel, but it is also going to end and I'm not always going to feel this way, which I think is an very interesting prelude to the next record. She does a really good job of making sure that that's
that's still in the mix here. And that keeps it from being something that I think would be way less impactful and way less dynamic and interesting to listen to. And I think Oh What A World is sometimes my favorite song on this album. Yeah, me too. But the other thing about that line that you called out is that I think that is also maybe even a reference to her celebrity. It's an acknowledgement mm. of how successful she's become and how happy she is. And wow, I kind of achieved my dreams at this point. Right. She hadn't won the Grammy, obviously, yet when she wrote the song, but she was in a really good place. Yeah, she was. Very clearly. And I think it's an acknowledgement of, wow, look what I did. I did all this. God, I hope this isn't too good to be true. I hope this lasts yeah. in some way, but I know it's not going to because I may be in touch with the world in this huge existential way, but mm. I'm not dumb. I know that things come to an end, just like relationships come to an end, and I'm just trying to enjoy it while it lasts. Sunsets fade and love does too, she says yes. on Space oh. Cowboy. Oh, yeah. What a line. I can't even think about that song. The minute we hang up this <laughs> call, I am going to be going back and listening to this album again. I sincerely do not have the words for how much I love this record. Going back to this was just a treat and a half. I just mm -hmm. absolutely love this record. The song that I want to make sure that we highlight here, which I think is the most famous song from this record at this point, mm -hmm. and the song that I think really most effectively gestures towards her alt-pop girly space that she's occupying at this moment is High Horse, which is maybe the most well-known Casey song to people that are casual fans of hers. Yeah. This song is like Casey goes disco in a sense, which is like a really fun way to think about it because it's the most chilled out disco song you've ever heard in your entire life. in your review, I thought very aptly compared it to like Casey's That Don't Impress Me Much, which I thought was like a yeah. really good comparison. I got a little Cheryl Crow on it. What's happening on this song? Is there anything you want to just mention about High Horse as maybe Casey's most notable song to a casual fan? I think it's of all of her music, not counting Starcrossed. Maybe there are some tracks on Starcrossed that could work like this. I think it's her most adult contemporary song. Right. You saying Cheryl Crow, I think makes a lot of sense because this is probably not counting, I think, Rainbow, just because it's just so, even though I think it's just a great friendship song it's so maternal and yeah. universal in its compassion yeah but in terms of like an adult contemporary song that's just broadly appealing to a humongous chunk of the population nothing beats high horse nothing yeah even if there's a bit of a twang to it yeah you could argue that it's more of a disco song that it's more of just a dance song that it's more fun like you don't really have to have any familiarity with casey musgraves to find this song funny and again <laughs> she uses that word play in the most clever earwormy way mm -hmm. and she just makes it sound brand new and she makes it sound like something no one else could possibly record mm -hmm. it's a really 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 fun song and it's a funny song you said in your review which was so true is how long was she sitting on that little metaphor or whatever the high horse oh for three albums but what's really interesting is i had to remind myself i kept looking at and then being shocked her music doesn't chart no and <laughs> Maybe like an idiot when I heard this song, I was like, this is going to be a smash. This is a country number one. Yeah. If she ever had a chance. Yeah, this was nope. the one. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of didn't do anything. No. People know it, like you said, but it didn't top any chart. And that's so crazy to me. No, she's like Lana in this way. Yeah. <laughs> this record is so beautifully produced. These guys deserve every accolade that they could get. And in Casey too, for steering the ship here, no mm. matter what genre she incorporates, this record has a very expansive sonic palette compared to the first two. There's a lot yeah. of shit going on here. She really is able to take her Casey thing and place it in a lot of context. But no matter what 
she does with it, Bobby, that makes this record so amazing to me. It never feels like she's pushing beyond her reach. These records no. still feel very much like Casey Musgrave songs. High Horse is still done with this incredibly light touch. This doesn't sound like some sort of bombastic EDM song or anything like that. Or yeah, no. it doesn't sound like a Mutt Lang song. You know what I mean? It still sounds like muted and kind of hazy and like has a bit of that psychedelic quality. I love the reverb guitar lick that kind of repeats the melody of the chorus. That kind of makes it yeah. sound like a high noon esque western flick or something like that mm-hmm. it's just so brilliantly restrained in what it does production wise this album is like a fucking 12 out of 10 i love this album so much is there any other songs here that you want to highlight that just help illustrate why this record is so special i do want to talk about rainbow but one more thing about this album and the production of it it's still country right high horse could be adult contemporary and i think it technically was an adult contemporary song like on adult contemporary radio but where else do you put this album it's like you said sonically interesting it's so special and unique but it's country it doesn't go anywhere else and i think that that's so cool too she's carved out her own little space in country music but the space can only be carved out of country you can't carve Mm. the space out of pop it needs to be there and i think that that's so awesome and i think one of the reasons why starcrossed was so disappointing to me (laughs) but rainbow i remember hearing rainbow for the first time and crying at my desk i was just like this is ridiculous this is crazy and the thing about it is that like i said she's to the best of my knowledge never come out as part of the queer community right we don't know her alphabet but it doesn't (laughs) seem to be anything other than like s for straight right like an ally But despite that, you listen to Rainbow and it is so gentle and it's Mm. so overdone. If you read the lyrics on paper, you'd be like, oh, give me a break. That's too much. Shut up. As a queer person, I don't need your support. Like straight, beautiful, girly, right? Right. With the hot music country star (laughs) husband or whatever. And yet you listen to it and it's like the sweetest thing you've ever heard in your life. Mm. It almost makes you wish you were really sad about something so that Casey could give you a hug. Right. Well, the sky is finally open. The rain and wind stop blowing. But you're stuck out in the same old storm again. You hold tight to your umbrella. Well, darling, I'm just trying to tell you that there's always been a It's a song that makes you feel like she gives the best hugs in the universe, Mm. that she's there for you, that she's a friend. And the fact that it's more about a friend just lifting up a friend is so, 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 so sweet to me. Yeah. There's a line in this song that almost always, maybe the tears don't fall, but it makes me tear up every single time that I listen to it. And I've listened to it Mm. hundreds of times. It's the first line of the second verse. If you could see what I see, you'd be blinded by the colors. I Mm. think that is one of the most beautiful things that you could say to a friend who just needs someone to say something nice and mm-hmm. they were like Casey tell me something nice and she said the nicest thing anyone's ever said and you're just like oh my god I wasn't expecting yeah. this if you could see what I see you'd be blinded by the colors yellow red orange and green and at least a million others that line is such a beautiful reflection of I think a lot of what we've been getting at in this conversation which is there's something about the way that she presents the way that she sees the world that you're like oh that's how I should see it and there's no better big sis best friend thing than (laughs) giving you a new perspective on things when you're feeling something fucked up that's what a friend should be able to do for you is to like give you a different way of looking at things is a great way to uplift someone or I think she also really sees the good in people the way she sees the good in life and the way that she's delighted by the act of living I think she also sees the good in people 
people. She sees the good in humanity and she's able to deliver profound wisdom without it feeling condescending or overthought or ponderous. She just kind of is able to deliver these maxims about life that feel like incredibly true and real and like you knew them all the time. Be like me. Yeah, exactly. Be like me. Mm-hmm. It'll all be all right is the last line of this record, which is just like a, such a powerful way to end what is to me one of the most marvelous, wondrous albums of that decade. I just love, Absolutely. love, 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 love this album so, so much. Okay, so we've talked about Casey as this interesting alt-country pop girly. I mean, I think this record takes whatever groundwork was laid by those first two albums and explodes that into like a whole nother stratosphere. I mean, she becomes a much bigger, more famous person after this. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. But she becomes a famous person not in the country sphere. She becomes right. an immensely famous person just broadly. I think it's just young people. Millennials and Gen Z fall in love with this woman. Right. Like I said, it's music that makes me think of Tumblr. It's just music that young people are sharing and loving and really catching on to that she feels like a discovery because I think she's sort of a little off the beaten path for young people who are fans of pop music, dance music, whatever it is. Hip hop, any genre that is not hers. Yeah. People who don't normally tread into country, I think are discovering her and completely falling in love. It's that vibe. Right. My parents become aware of her at this point because the Grammys did one right thing in recent memory, which was give this record album of the year. I remember that was just the most moving thing ever. Are people invested in her extra musical narrative in a new way? Barely. I still think of her maybe a little more now, but specifically at that time, she was still kind of just a Nashville celebrity. She lived there. She was kind of seen out and about there. She was dating a country guy. Yeah, she got coverage. But again, she tells us who she is. She's not out and about all the time. Right. I just remember being all of a sudden acutely aware. Maybe it was just because of my passion for Golden Hour about this marriage and then about the disillusion of this marriage. I just remember that being a huge thing that I all of a sudden knew about. And I frankly am not someone that engages that much with, I mean, honestly, Who Weekly is my main access point to (laughs) celebrities' narratives and gossip. But other than that, me and my sister have this conflict all the time because she's so fascinated by the personal lives of pop stars and like how they're refracting that through their art. She will get a new album from a celebrity and just be like, what's that song about? Was this when she did this? And is that when she did that? And blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know. But like, I just remember remember having this acute awareness that she had gone through this divorce and that the new album was going to have to be a response to what happened with that divorce. Do you remember that feeling? Oh yeah, I definitely do. And also the divorce came because she was with him at the Grammys. Right. I think that that Grammys win was the introduction of Casey Musgraves to a lot of people. And I think it was the introduction of her relationship to a lot of her fans. Right. I would have nothing without songs to me. It's all about... It's just all about the songs. Um, I'm very lucky to have a team that is very trustworthy, very incredible, and they're honest with me. Um, I love my husband so much, and this album wouldn't have been created without you. Right, and the album's Um, about him. And about him being this incredible part of her life, this incredible discovery. Right. And so after we've officially fallen in love with her and seen her get her big award and she's kind of on top of the world after the Grammys, Mm. we really care that she's divorcing him. And that comes two years later during the pandemic. She's like, we're through. And in that little snippet of time, they were kind of a country golden couple, Mm. even though he was not super famous. Right. But what sucks is, and I think that it informs so much of how Starcross sounds, how it was received how it was Mm -hmm. built up. We as consumers of culture and participants in culture constantly commenting on things and writing about things and messaging about things and putting up these public opinions that are seen by so many, so many, so many, so many people. Mm -hmm. We've started to demand a lot from our women musicians Mm -hmm. when they break up with people. And we don't really demand it of the men. 
And the moment she divorced him, I mean, this happened with Adele too. It happened when Beyonce was cheated on and they both create these breakup anthems or breakup albums that are yeah. tremendous and people love them. But yeah. doesn't that suck to have to go through this breakup, but then feel burdened to like go through the breakup and be really emotionally vulnerable and unpack it publicly to strangers? That must suck for these women. Yeah. And so you get excited because you want more Casey music, but then you're like, God, I feel really bad for her. I feel really, really bad for her that people are probably pressuring her to write a lot of music that she may not be ready to write. Mm. I think it's so important to bring up those two records because I do think those records have been tone setters in modern pop, 21 and Lemonade, because they were such grand statements on this sort of topic and they were so ambitious and so fully realized as these huge statements about these personal ruptures that I do think they've created this tone where it's like that is what pop stars have to do when they go through something like this like it does feel yeah. to be like this pressure and Casey's music is ambitious in its own ways I think especially on Golden Hour there's a real sense of scope and ambition to that record that's understated in the very Casey way that it is you're never burdened by the ambitious intent of that record you're never sitting there listening to that feeling overwhelmed by like oh my god what is she trying to do here you know yeah. whereas when you absorb a Beyonce album you're just completely bulldozed by the scope of the ambition of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. This doesn't lend itself naturally to Casey. So when I think about Starcrossed, which obviously we can touch on now, we don't have to harp on it too hard. But the reason I asked about her celebrity narrative is because I do think for the first time she perhaps got knocked off of her instincts or her natural habitat by the pressure that she felt to like respond to this in some sort of massive pop starian sort of way. She's like, now I'm a pop star officially right I have one album of the year at the Grammys this was my by far my most successful record ever I have all of these new eyes on me and I've had this personal narrative thing occur at least in my little corner of the world like I've got to make my grand statement on that I mean she literally even releases Starcrossed which comes out in 2021 with a full length lemonade style film on Paramount Plus yeah As a fan, it's hard not to just like get too invested in the details and speculate on what was happening behind the scenes. Who made her do this? But it's like, you look at the lead up to this and this is an industry-wide thing. Starcross is insanely packaged. Mm -hmm. Visually, it comes with a style guide, basically, like all big pop early (laughs) albums come with. It comes with a fucking style guide. You have all the merch before. Pre-order the vinyl. It looks like this. It slapped on everything. They're teasing you with all of this stuff. Mm. And it's so overtly capitalist in a way that even though she's part of this capital, capitalistic music industry that's fine you can't deny that but it was never that obvious and blatant before and it sort of seemed a little antithetical to kind of everything that she stood for to like be seeking out all these vinyl pre-orders and what Starcrust is is should be proof to anyone never pre-order vinyl never pre-order vinyl (laughs) Don't let them fuck with you unless it's literally Beyonce. Don't pre-order vinyl. Right. Because you are going to get this overly manufactured, overworked, overproduced album that is kind of on a surface level. If this were anyone else, I'd probably like it. Mm, Interesting. I tried to give it the most honest listen of my life yesterday. Right. Right. And I was like, you know what? This album is completely fine. Fine is a really good word for it. And there's actually two songs that I think are really, really great. Like, I think the lead single, Justified, sounds like Mm. the first track of a breakup album I would love to hear by Casey. Or any album I'd love to hear by Casey. Agree. Justified is really, 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 really good. If I cry just a little and then laugh in the middle If I hate you and I love you then I change my mind And 
And even the video, that part of the video where it's just her driving down an open Texas road, beautiful. Yeah. Simple. Great. And even the way that the whole conceit of the early part of the song is, I'm justified in my negative feelings towards you. And then she flips it at the end and goes, you're justified in how you feel about me as well, is a really clever conceit of the song. The classic Taylor little flip at the end. Yes, exactly. But the visuals, I think, really ruined it for me. I feel like I don't know this person anymore. Yeah, I agree. And that was something that was kind of insurmountable to me. From the moment that movie starts, it's giving hopped off the plane at LAX. Who is this person? Who are your new friends? <laughs> Why is Meg Salter here? And it's the first time I ever felt in her career that she was reaching for something that was kind of out of her grasp. There's a reason Beyonce does that. It's because Beyonce is singularly talented at creating these grand visual statements. We think still. We don't know. We don't know. But <laughs> we certainly don't know. We're pretty sure. To a certain point, she seemed like she was pretty good at it. But like, it was immediately this feeling of, oh, she's gone beyond herself in this certain way. And then in terms of the music on the record, Bobby, my first note here is this record is so capital. I got divorced, period. It's so repetitive. It's so repetitive. And her attempt to like make it into like a narrative arc where it begins with I want to be a good wife and then I go through the breakup. It doesn't play to her strengths as kind of this person that finds profundity in like really simple ideas. She doesn't play to her strengths here. This is overly ambitious and not in the way that works for her. It also lacks the vivid lyricism that animates some of her exactly. best songs as well. The whole thing feels to me murky and fuzzy. And when I was listening to it today, we've talked about her a lot today, but I think it's instructive here. It reminds me of why I don't care for Midnight's that much. It's like a, not mm -hmm. a breakup record, but another song that I feel like obscures a very vivid songwriter with a singular point of view behind a lot of murk and lack of specificity and broadness. It's so funny because you would think this record could be so moving because she's obviously able to create incredibly moving music. And I feel very little when I listen to this music overall, even though there are some songs that I like. I like Justified, like I said. I think Simple Times is nice. But yeah. in terms of the specificity that you were talking about, people People are hyping her up, pressuring her to make this big divorce album, and then you listen to it, and I'm sort of like, I really have no sense of what went wrong in this marriage. Exactly. We've been talking about how she's really great in speaking in broad terms and cliches, but making them feel so personal and so special, mm -hmm. and here she speaks in broad terms that are unenlightening. I have no idea what went wrong here. You're like, no, oh, it's so true. he thought you were going to be someone else, and <laughs> you thought you wanted to be married, but you didn't want to be married. Yeah. I have no idea what went wrong here. You're so right. It ain't It's so disappointing from that perspective, especially because, and I think if this had just come out and it hadn't been so merchandised and so overpackaged mm -hmm. and didn't have that short film with it or the visual album, whatever the hell you call it, <laughs> I think it would have been so much easier to tolerate as sort of, oh, I feel bad for her. This isn't maybe her best work. But the way that it was kind of forced upon us and hyped up, I think is totally fine. And I think that artists deserve that when they want it. But to me, I felt like she never wanted it. And the visuals helped that. In those visuals, she never really looks that comfortable. And that kind of harmed my entire perception of this album. I went to the tour and she had the same vibe. I mean, look, it was the first tour I saw out of the pandemic. And so everyone was feeling a little bit weird, I think. <laughs> yeah. But she looked uncomfortable. And this maybe is like actually a good place for us to conclude the conversation. It was like, I almost don't want to see Casey in an arena setting. Because it's the intimacy. It's everything that we've been talking about. I want to see her play in a space that feels like it plays to those strengths. There was something about watching her pace back and forth on this giant stage. She doesn't dance. Arenas are hard to fill with your personality. That's why so mm -hmm. much goes into creating arena spectaculars and that's why they usually are best suited to pop stars that are willing to go for that bombast. Use the space. 
space. Right, use the space. <laughs> have 25 other people yeah. on stage with them, whatever. Yeah. So watching her pace back and forth, I couldn't stop watching it, Bobby. Like she had on this little mini dress and she couldn't stop pulling it down. Clearly the dress was a little too short mm. for her comfort. And I just was so, Casey, like how comfortable you are in your own skin is why I love you so much. And I just found myself being like, something's off with this whole era. <laughs> the vibes are wrong, but it was incredible on the flip side to see 20,000 people go out to see her because yeah. as we've talked about so many times on the show, she doesn't have hits. She's not really a traditional pop star in so many meaningful ways. And yet she represents a really important strain of contemporary pop stardom where it's like, you don't need any of that stuff. You don't really need it. And you're still touring arenas. Like it was a very impressive at the same time to me. I didn't go. My friends went, are you going to go? And I was like, no, I had your same yeah. thought. I was like, I don't want to see this person in a stadium. I'm going to cry to her in my car. I had a couple opportunities to see her at the Ryman in Nashville and I didn't go. And I like regret, I will regret it forever. Yeah. But like, I don't want to see that. And they were like, it was awkward. But when she sang the songs from the other albums, it was great. I loved it. And it seemed like the crowd was really there for that. Yeah. But I wanted exit polls of people who were leaving MSG or wherever she played and be like, is this your first country concert? Because I bet it was a lot of people's first ever country concert. 19 out of 20,000, I would guess. Which is so cool. That is yeah. still so cool to me. Oh, for sure. No one had ever paid for a country artist before and now they're paying for Casey. That's the thing though, even though Starcross was a disappointment. Okay, fine. I don't care. Make another album. I'll love it. She's brought a lot of people into the fold. She's continued Taylor Swift's yeah. work in that particular way where I think she has expanded who could potentially be interested in country music, but in a different way. Taylor's brought it to the masses and Casey's brought it to like the cool kids or something like that, like to Charlie XCX fans or whatever. Yeah. That's a big legacy for her. What else do you think mm -hmm. is Casey's legacy? Where could we see Casey's imprint on the profession of pop stardom? Is there other country acts? Are there other people that have come in her wake? Are there other pop stars? Do you see aspects of the legacy that Casey's going to leave behind in this space? I think the main legacy that Casey's going to leave behind is Casey came before your Lil Nas X, your Mickey mm. Guyton. She came before Marin Morris, just right before. Yes. And I think that these are people who are playing with country music in fun ways. And I don't want to say that Casey necessarily opened the doors for them, but I think that Casey is proving to an entire generation of young musicians that there are other genres available to you and you shouldn't feel closed out of any one space, even if maybe you're a non-traditional entrant in that space. Yes. And I think that the way that she proved that you can sort of chug your way through, even mm. without a smash, and find success in this industry that maybe traditionally wouldn't have accepted you mm. is going to be her legacy. But I think that she goes hand in hand with an entire generation of young country artists. I think she's really crucial to that. She proves the openness of a genre that I think many people rightfully consider quite closed off. Mm. And I think that that, to me, that's powerful. And she reinvigorated my long hibernating love of country music. And I think that that's really cool. Yeah, I think that's dead on. I think that there's going to be country stars in a new generation that are busting down a lot of these things and having massive mainstream success that will look back at her and see her as someone that helped usher them through that space. I can 100% envision that happening. Baby, I ain't Wonder Woman. All right, so last topic of conversation. <gasps> what? <laughs> I'm like nervous, but okay. Where do you think Casey Musgraves belongs in the pop pantheon, Bobby Figure? This is so, okay. <laughs> it's so hard. Like you hate, you hate putting your faves in a bucket. I don't care what the bucket is, but uh, you know, that's why we listen to the show. Unfortunately, that's what we have to do here. I know. I hate to say it. That's why we came here today. I almost... <laughs> 
I almost felt like she had to be a niche legend. Yes. But then I was like, no. Ah! Oh no, she thinks she's a niche legend. See, when I told you at the beginning of the recording, I was like, she's either a niche legend, but I don't think she's tier five. I think she might be 4B or a niche legend, but I can't figure out where I think she belongs. But it hurts my heart to think that she's just a niche legend. Yeah, but what's wrong with being a niche legend, Bobby? Nothing's wrong. I have the hat. Oh, I don't have it on. Why don't I have on my niche legend hat? Bobby, all of our fucking faves are niche legends. I know. I know. It's true. Bitch. Like, literally everyone we like is a niche legend. Like, come on. The thing that really threw me was the Star Cross Stadium Tour. Yeah. That kind of fucked with me. And I didn't know where to put her. But also the Stadium Tour, especially now that you're talking about having been there, yeah. to know that it really didn't quite work. And then based on what people were texting me from it, it never seemed quite right. Maybe that does prove that she's a niche legend. She's a niche legend. Okay, as a point of comparison, mm -hmm. do you see her as an equivalent to Charlie? Ugh. Charlie's never won album of the year at the Grammys, that I will say. Yeah, yeah. I almost... What about Lana? I think it's closer to Lana because she's cultivated these fan bases that you're going to have kind of forever. And I don't want to compare it to Charlie because I don't think that Charlie is quite as accessible. No. And I think that Charlie also has aspirations that are grander than both of those women. I think that Charlie is really desperate to be a tier one pop star. Yeah. And I don't think that either Lana or Casey, at least based on how they present themselves publicly, really seem to want that. Right. So I think Lana makes a lot more sense. But Lana's bigger than Casey, I think. Yeah, for sure. But Lana and Casey and Charlie both have a similar vibe in that despite where they ultimately end up on the Pantheon, you kind of have no doubts that they'll be making music for the foreseeable future. Yes. You never see even more than maybe a minor hiatus happening in their future. They just seem like yeah. they're going to do this until they're dead. And I think that that's really exciting. Yeah, they're like cult phenomenons. That's what yeah. these niche legends are. They have enough of a fan base to sustain themselves. The way I think about it that I think is helpful in terms of thinking about niche legends is it's pop stars that operate the way that we would have thought of indie acts in 2006. Modest Mouse or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. You're like, mm -hmm. Or like Death Cab for Cutie. Death Cab, yeah. Death Cab for Cutie, I bet, would play at the Barclays Center too. You know what I mean? And they've never charted a song. Casey does seem like the kind of artist who is not gonna sell out Barclays unless she's doing a 20-year yeah. tour. That sort of thing. And that's fine. I think next tour we're back in amphitheaters and stuff like that, which is like better for her. Yeah. I think she's a niche legend, Bobby, because the thing is she doesn't have any hits. <laughs> it's so true. It's so <laughs> weird that she doesn't have any hits. It's so weird. Even Lana's got her Cedric Gervais remix of Summertime Sadness. <laughs> I don't know. To me, she's a niche legend. She's definitely not tier five. She's not Nicole Scherzinger. Like, come on. She's not tier five. But like, if I'm looking at tier four, I'm just kind of like, she's not Selena Gomez either. You know what I mean? She's yeah. not Sierra. She's not Camila Cabello either. I, you're right. She's she's a niche legend. She's a niche I legend. Just, I think being a niche legend is kind of the best place to be in the Pantheon. If you're not an icon, you kind of got to be a niche legend. I think that any tier higher than niche legend, now that I'm really thinking about it, applies too much pressure to Casey. Yeah. And I don't want her to be burdened with too much pressure. You know, it's yeah. not good for yeah. her. She needs to be as chill as possible. If I was going to be a fucking pop star, I'd want to be a niche legend. I don't see that as a knock in any way. So many of my favorite acts are in her. Robin, Robin, another great niche legend who, like Casey, we can say. Perfect. She's in good company here. All right, niche yeah. legend. Last question for you, Bobby. What is an underrated Casey Musgrave song, something perhaps we have not given a ton of attention to or haven't mentioned yet in the show that we could send this episode? out on. I'm ready. Okay. Die fun. Die fun. I think it is one of those songs that's all about what her vibe is and it's a mission statement. I love it. I love Die Fun. It's so chill. It's so chill. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, I love it. Let's go out on Die Fun. Bobby Finger, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Thanks, Louie. Before we get to heaven
All right, so there you have it. Pop Pantheon, Casey Musgraves, a certified and bona fide niche legend. The judgment is rendered. I want to say the heartiest thank you to the wonderful Bobby Finger for being such a great guest. Thank you, as always, to the incredible, luminous Ross Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week, and to PJ Brunetti for his help editing this episode. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L. O-U-I-E-X-I-V. Check out our merch in the store, poppantheonpod.com. Come to Gorgeous Gorgeous next weekend, March 25th. Check it link is in the show notes of this episode. Join Pop Pantheon All Access for bonus content, including our latest review of Miley Cyrus's Endless Summer Vacation and so much more. And until I see you next time, have a wonderful life. Goodbye. Before we get to heaven, I'm